Chapter Fourth, Parts Three to Six of God the Invisible King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. God the Invisible King by H. G. Wells. Chapter Fourth, Parts Three to Six. Three. God is an external reality. It may be argued that if atheists and agnostics, when they set themselves to express the good will that is in them, do shape out God, that if their conception of right living falls in so completely with the conception of God's service as to be broadly identical, then indeed God, like the ether of scientific speculation, is no more than a theory, no more than an imaginative externalization of man's inherent good will. Why trouble about God, then? Is not the declaration of a good disposition a sufficient evidence of salvation? What is the difference between such benevolent unbelievers as Professor Metchnikoff or Mr. McCabe and those who have found God? The difference is this, that the benevolent atheist stands alone upon his own good will, without a reference, without a standard, trusting to his own impulse to goodness, relying upon his own moral strength. A certain immodesty, a certain self-righteousness, hangs like a precipice above him. Incalculable temptations open like gulfs beneath his feet. He has not really given himself or got away from himself. He has no one to whom he can give himself. He is still a masterless man. His exaltation is self-centered, is priggishness. His fall is unrestrained by any exterior obligation. His devotion is only the good will in himself, a disposition. It is a mood that may change. At any moment it may change. He may have pledged himself to his own pride and honor. But who will hold him to his bargain? He has no source of strength beyond his own amiable sentiments. His conscience speaks with an unsupported voice, and no one watches while he sleeps. He cannot pray. He can but ejaculate. He has no real and living link with other men of good will. And those whose acquiescence in the idea of God is merely intellectual are in no better case than those who deny God altogether. They may have all the forms of truth and not divinity. The religion of the atheist with a God-shaped blank at its heart and the persuasion of the unconverted theologian are both like lamps unlit. The lit lamp has no difference in form from the lamp unlit, but the lit lamp is alive and the lamp unlit is asleep or dead. The difference between the unconverted and the unbeliever and the servant of the true God is this. It is that the latter has experienced a complete turning away from self. This only difference is all the difference in the world. It is the realization that this goodness that I thought was within me, and of myself, and upon which I rather prided myself, is without me and above myself, and infinitely greater and stronger than I. It is the immortal, and I am mortal. It is invincible and steadfast in its purpose, and I am weak and insecure. It is no longer that I, out of my inherent and remarkable goodness, out of the excellence of my quality and the benevolence of my heart, give a considerable amount of time and attention to the happiness and welfare of others, because I choose to do so. 
On the contrary, I have come under a divine imperative. I am obeying an irresistible call. I am a humble and willing servant of the righteousness of God. That altruism which Professor Metchnikoff and Mr. McCabe would have us regard as the goal and refuge of a broad and free intelligence is really the first simple commandment in the religious life. 4. Another Religious Materialist Now here is a passage from a book, Evolution and the War, by Professor Metchnikoff's translator, Dr. Chalmers Mitchell which comes even closer to our conception of God as an immortal being arising out of man and external to the individual man. He has been discussing that well-known passage of Kant's, Two things fill my mind with ever-renewed wonder and awe the more often and deeper I dwell on them, the starry vault above me and the moral law within me. From that discussion, Dr. Chalmers Mitchell presently comes to this most definite and interesting statement. Writing as a hard-shell Darwinian evolutionist, a lover of the scalpel and microscope, and of patient, empirical observation, as one who dislikes all forms of supernaturalism, and who does not shrink from the implications even of the phrase that thought is a secretion of the brain as bile is a secretion of the liver, I assert as a biological fact that the moral law is as real and as external to man as a starry vault. It has no secure seat in any single man or in any single nation. It is the work of the blood and tears of long generations of men. It is not in man, inborn or innate, but is enshrined in his traditions, in his customs, in his literature and his religion. Its creation and sustenance are the crowning glory of man, and his consciousness of it puts him in a high place above the animal world. Men live and die nations rise and fall but the struggle of individual lives and of individual nations must be measured not by their immediate needs but as they tend to the debasement or perfection of man's great achievement this is the same reality this is the same link and captain that this book asserts it seems to me a secondary matter whether we call him man's great achievement or the son of man or the god of mankind or God. So far as the practical and moral ends of life are concerned, it does not matter how we explain or refuse to explain his presence in our lives. There is but one possible gap left between the position of Dr. Chalmers Mitchell and the position of this book. In this book, it is asserted that God responds, that he gives courage and the power of self-suppression to our weakness. 5. A note on a lecture by Professor Gilbert Murray. Let me now quote and discuss a very beautiful passage from a lecture upon Stoicism by Professor Gilbert Murray, which also displays the same characteristic of an involuntary shaping out of God in the forms of denial. It is a passage remarkable for its conscientious and resolute agnosticism and it is remarkable too for its blindness to the possibility of separating quite completely the idea of the infinite being from the idea of god it is another striking instance of that obsession of modern minds by merely christian theology of which i have already complained professor murray has quoted mr bevan's phrase for god the friend behind phenomena and he does not seem to realize that that phrase carries with it no obligation whatever to believe that this friend is in control of the phenomena 
He assumes that he is supposed to be in control as if it were a matter of course. We do seem to find, Professor Murray writes, not only in all religions, but in practically all philosophies, some belief that man is not quite alone in the universe, but is met in his endeavors toward the good by some external help or sympathy. We find it everywhere in the unsophisticated man. We find it in the unguarded self-revelations of the most severe and conscientious atheists. Now, the Stoics, like many other schools of thought, drew an argument from this consensus of all mankind. It was not an absolute proof of the existence of the gods or providence, but it was a strong indication. The existence of a common instinctive belief in the mind of man gives at least a presumption that there must be a good cause for that belief. This is a reasonable position. There must be some such cause but it does not follow that the only valid cause is the truth of the content of the belief. I cannot help suspecting that this is precisely one of those points on which Stoicism, in company with almost all philosophy up to the present time, has gone astray through not sufficiently realizing its dependence on the human mind as a natural biological product. For it is very important in this matter to realize that the so-called belief is not really an intellectual judgment so much as a craving of the whole nature. It is only of very late years that psychologists have begun to realize the enormous dominion of those forces in man of which he is normally unconscious. We cannot escape as easily as these brave men dreamed from the grip of the blind powers beneath the threshold. Indeed, as I see philosophy after philosophy falling into this unproven belief in the friend behind phenomena, as I find that I myself cannot, except for a moment and by an effort, refrain from making the same assumption, it seems to me that perhaps here too we are under the spell of a very old, ineradicable instinct. We are gregarious animals. Our ancestors have been such for countless ages. We cannot help looking out on the world as gregarious animals do. We see it in terms of humanity and of fellowship. Students of animals under domestication have shown us how the habits of a gregarious creature, taken away from his kind, are shaped in a thousand details by reference to the lost pack which is no longer there. The pack which a dog tries to smell his way back to all the time he is out walking. The pack he calls to for help when danger threatens. It is a strange and touching thing, this external hunger of the gregarious animal for the herd of friends who are not there. And it may be, it may very possibly be, that in the matter of this friend behind phenomena, our own yearning and our own almost ineradicable instinctive conviction, since they are certainly not founded on either reason or observation, are in origin the groping of a lonely-souled gregarious animal to find its herd or its herd leader in the great spaces between the stars. At any rate, it is a belief very difficult to get rid of. There the passage and the lecture end. I would argue that here again is an inadvertent witness to the reality of God. Professor Murray writes of gregarious animals as though there existed solitary animals that are not gregarious, pure individualists, atheists, so to speak, and as though this appeal to a life beyond one's own was not the universal disposition of living things. His classical training disposes him to a realistic exaggeration of individual difference.
but nearly every animal, and certainly every mentally considerable animal, begins under parental care, in a nest or a litter, mates to breed, and is associated for much of its life. Even the great carnivores do not go alone, except when they are old and have done with the most of life. Every pack, every herd, begins at some point in a couple. It is the equivalent of the tiger's litter if that were to remain undispersed. And it is within the memory of men still living that in many districts the African lion has, with a change of game and conditions, lapsed from a solitary to a gregarious, that is to say, a prolonged family habit of life. Man, too, if in his ape-like phase he resembled the other higher apes, is an animal becoming more gregarious and not less. He has passed within the historical period from a tribal gregariousness to a nearly cosmopolitan tolerance. And he has his tribe about him. He is not, as Professor Murray seems to suggest, a solitary, lost, gregarious beast. Why should his desire for God be regarded as the overflow of an unsatisfied gregarious instinct, when he has home, town, society, companionship, trade union, state, increasingly at hand to glut it? Why should gregariousness drive a man to God rather than to the third-class carriage and the public house? Why should gregariousness drive men out of crowded Egyptian cities into the cells of the Thebaid? Schopenhauer, in a memorable passage about the hedgehogs who assembled for warmth, is flatly opposed to Professor Murray, and seems far more plausible when he declares that the nature of man is insufficiently gregarious. The parallel with the dog is not a valid one. Does not the truth lie rather in the supposition that it is not the friend that is the instinctive delusion, but the isolation? Is not the real deception our belief that we are completely individualized, and is it not possible that this, that Professor Murray calls instinct, is really not a vestige, but a new thing arising out of our increasing understanding and intellectual penetration to that greater being of the species, that vine of which we are the branches? Why should not the soul of the species, many faceted indeed, be nevertheless a soul like our own? Here, as in the case of Professor Metchnikoff, and in many other cases of atheism, it seems to me that nothing but an inadequate understanding of individuation bars the way to at least the intellectual recognition of the true God. 6. Religion as Ethics And while I am dealing with rationalists, let me note certain recent interesting utterances of Sir Harry Johnston's. You will note that while in this book we use the word God to indicate the God of the heart, Sir Harry uses God for that idea of God of the universe, which we have spoken of as the infinite being. This use of the word God is of late theological origin. The original identity of the words good and God and all the stories of the gods are against him. But Sir Harry takes up God only to define him away into incomprehensible necessity. Thus, we know absolutely nothing concerning the force we call God, and, assuming such an intelligent ruling force to be in existence, permeating this universe of millions of stars, and, no doubt, tens of millions of planets, we do not know under what conditions and limitations it works. 
we are quite entitled to assume that the end of such an influence is intended to be order out of chaos, happiness and perfection out of incompleteness and misery, and we are entitled to identify the reactionary forces of brute nature with the anthropomorphic devil if primitive religions, the power of darkness resisting the power of light. But in these conjectures we must surely come to the conclusion that the theoretical potency we call God makes endless experiments and scrap heaps the failures. Think of the dinosaurs and the expenditure of creative energy that went to their differentiation and their well-nigh incredible physical development. To such a divine force as we postulate, the whole development and perfecting of life on this planet, the whole production of man, may seem little more than to any one of us would be the chipping out, the cutting, the carving, and the polishing of a gem, and we should feel as little remorse or pity for the scattered dust and fragments as must the creative force of the immeasurably vast universe feel for the disjecta membra of perfected life on this planet. But thence he goes on to a curiously imperfect treatment of the God of man, as if he consisted in nothing more than some vague sort of humanitarianism. Sir Harry's ideas are much less thoroughly thought out than those of any other of these skeptical writers I have quoted. On that account, they are perhaps more typical. He speaks as though Christ were simply an eminent, but ill-reported and abominably served teacher of ethics, and yet of the only right ideal and ethics he speaks as though religions were nothing more than ethical movements and as though christianity were merely someone remarking with a bright impulsiveness that everything was simply horrid and so let us install loving-kindness as a cardinal axiom he ignores altogether the fundamental essential of religion which is the development and synthesis of the divergent and conflicting motives of the unconverted life and the identification of the individual life with the immortal purpose of god he presents a conception of religion relieved of its nonsense as the cheerful self-determination of a number of bright little individuals much stirred but by no means overcome by cosmic pity to the service of man as he seems to present it it is as outward a thing it goes as little into the intimacy of their lives as though they had after proper consideration agreed to send a subscription to a red cross ambulance or take part in a public demonstration against the armenian massacres or do any other rather nice-spirited exterior thing this is what he says i hope that the religion of the future will devote itself wholly to the service of man it can do so without departing from the christian ideal and christian ethics it need only drop all that is silly and disputable, and mattering not neither here nor there of Christian theology, a theology virtually absent from the direct teaching of Christ, and all of Judaistic literature or prescriptions not made immortal in their application by unassailable truth and by the confirmation of science. An excellent remedy for the nonsense which still clings about religion may be found in two books, Cotter Monson's Service of Man, which was published as long ago as 1887, and has since been reissued by the Rationalist Press Association in its well-known Six Penny series, and J. Allenson Picton's Man and the Bible. Similarly, those who wish to acquire a sane view of the relations between man and God would do well to read Winwood Reed's Martyrdom of Man. 
Sir Harry, in fact, clears the ground for God very ably, and then makes a well-meaning gesture in the vacant space. There is no help nor strength in his gesture unless God is there. Without God, the service of man is no better than a hobby or a sentimentality or an hypocrisy in the undisciplined prison of the mortal life. End of chapter 4, parts 3 to 6 Recording by William Tomko.